Mr. Bernard Callio. Good morning. Pop, bam, pow, <laughs> zap, zap. Good morning, Richard Watts. How are you? Whoop. Whoop. Whoop? Is that a V-W-O-O-P? Uh, yes, it's the noise the TARDIS makes in comic books. Uh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, hello. Uh, hello. Hello. It's so good to be here and uh, talking comics in Drawn Out, our, our comics segment. Yes, every month you, uh, we sit around and we chat comic books and you pass books over to me and I go, ooh. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great relationship. It is. Um, I, t- the, today, though, today I have some good news and some bad news and some good news. Oh, okay. I'm going to start with the good news. That sounds sensible because there's two lots of it, so we can bookend the bad. (laughs) Uh, The good news is very good, uh, and it is a book uh, by Simon McCown, M.C. Big K E O W N Summer account, and it's called. And what was the name of that uh, music company that you just quoted? Then was it the True and Dangerous? The Lost and Lonesome Recording Company. <laughs> True and Dangerous kind of works too. True and Dangerous, Lost and Lonesome. It segues perfectly into this book, which is a beautiful, beautiful comic book called The True History of the Whipstick Sound. Um, here we are. In, I'm passing it across. To Richard, into Richard's trembling hands. Um, uh, <laughs> there they are, tremble, tremble. Um, and uh, we, we've we've talked about Simon before on the sh- on the show with um, his his book, A Short Lifetime on Rooftops, which came out in 20, 2013. And that was about uh, a couple of um, a teenage uh, secondary school students and who just spent a lot of time up on rooftops. And and he's uh, Simon is from uh, Castlemaine, and so that book was set was it set in Castle or um, maybe Bendigo. But anyway, that's the sort of area of Victoria that we're talking about in a short short lifetime on rooftops. This new book, The True History of the Whipstick Sound, uh, is, if possible, even more delightful than a short lifetime on rooftops. It's um, about Seymour, a young uh, secondary school student who who is very interested in this strange musical... Uh, a style that comes out of a area near his rural home uh, called the whipstick, and the whipstick sound looks like this sort of scrubby bit of bush. Um, the whipstick, a dense jungle of low trees, mallee and scrub, about 25 miles long and in parts almost impenetrable. Gold was found there and fringe areas were worked, but many men were lost and died of thirst deeper in the scrub suggesting perhaps that this should be a radio play as well as a comic book but uh, Seymour um, has this now the, the whipstick sound which is a, a you know, like a like a sort of music a, it, a, a brand a, a, a movement I guess and but it's prior to his time so it's like I suppose it's 20 15 20 years before his time and he knows about it he's listened to this band called Cloudland and they have this they have they have the whipstick sound and he speaks about the whipstick sound sort of mystically you know it is it's both in those bands that created the whipstick sound but it's also in the landscape to me this is a very exciting idea about, um, presented in comic book terms. The the, sound, the, the idea that the sound um, is emanates from the from the country. It is it is condensed by that band, and um, do this. Yeah, do that. Okay, that's better. Thank you. I can hear myself now, um, and probably you can too. Um, I see it's sort of falling down. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, he's got a lovely simple style. Uh, Simon and um, and and just the, these characters Seymour being the central character, but he's got this bunch of great sort of 
um, friends. Offsiders. Offsiders. Sidekicks. Yeah. Everyone uh, needs a sidekick oh, in comic they're, books. They're just a great gang and they're so sardonic and, and uh, <laughs> they are I found the a gang. Of the gang. One of them uh, in a wheelchair with a pirate flag oh. flying from the chair. Oh. Um, they're standing around looking, I don't know, like they should be in an indie band. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Or, it is. Standing or wheeling around, I should say. <laughs> yeah. um, so I just, and, and, and then so we follow Seymour as he researches the whipstick sound. And so he's, he's got this lovely uh, secondary school teacher who says, no, 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 you should do, you should definitely do a doco uh, as your, um, as your um, assignment. And uh, Seymour says to his teacher, I didn't know you loved, you, you like the whipstick sound. And they said, she goes, ah, I was at their first gig sort of thing. So it's a great, you know, sort of breaking down of boundaries. And, it's, and, and so he, then he goes on and, and finds these people who have sort of, you know, it is sort of, it'd be a great film. You know, people who have sort of, were this vital music scene and then have sort of... Bands like Shallow Gravy. Yeah. Wendy and the Tall Hats. <laughs> Moonlight hat. Flat, who are, uh, are rumoured now, some of them are playing in an Anthony and the Johnsons cover band <laughs> called Bird Now, if you can believe that. If you can believe that. So, and for me, I don't know a whole lot about music, so I, I'm just going, I think, is this real? I, you know, I'm, I, I don't know, you know, if... And um, he has done, Simon has done a beautiful world creation going on here. And he, he refers to both of those books, Short Lifetime on Rooftops and The True History of the Whipstick Sound, as part of a larger project, the Bendigo Pub Project of Oscar Largo. And so it's just, it's, it's, it's quite a remarkable world building exercise that he's doing with these books. I love the fact he's got kind of like a, a foe on the road quote <laughs> on the back cover of this comic. <laughs> yes. Um, as you say, it's a really simple, uh, kind of line drawing style, but expressive in terms of characterization and, and the individual character Very. of the people he's drawing and writing about. And I love the idea of documenting music mm. and the the relationship of music and place mm. in a comic yeah because trying to convey sound in a comic as we began with this, this very conversation <laughs> by going zap pow yeah, exactly at each exactly other, so it's it's a challenging form but yeah. nonetheless it's such a beautiful way to document a personal obsession yes yes and and I think you know that way that comics give the comics give voice to things so strongly you know that each individual artist gives gets you get their uh, their feeling i think through their line and that's not of course just their written word lines but their their drawn lines as well now you, you get that uh, so you, the true history history of the whipstick sound by simon mccown simon mccown m dot You can go there, but it's also available at Sticky in the City. Uh, Sticky, the great uh, zine shop in the city, and it's a wonderful thing. It's it looks fantastic. Yeah, it's, it really it's, does. It's, it's absolutely a delight and a joy. Now I'm going to let I'm going to turn your microphone off for a moment oh. so you can adjust it slightly. How can I do um, that? Just push the whole thing. Maybe just move to a different microphone. Maybe move to a different. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. You have microphone droop. I'm going. <laughs> I'm going. I'm here. I'm over here. Is that good? That's that's much better. That's, a, that's yeah. actually sorry, good. folks. Technical dramas here in the studio. <laughs> oh One my them, gosh! As Bernard was talking, his microphone was gradually <laughs> wilting, kind of like like a pot plant uh, deprived of water. In in, this, in kind of uh, what's that cinematic style in which you film montage? No. What? Me animation? No. What? <laughs> Doesn't matter. Back to comic book. Back to comic book. Bad news. I got, I got some bad news. Oh, I know. And it's this. 
Batman the Killing Joke. Batman the, the Killing Joke. The um, occasionally controversial comic. It is a, an occasionally controversial comic, and it is particularly... Con- so it was, this was written in 1999, published in 1998 by uh, DC Comics, by combining the great... Uh, talents of Alan Moore, writer, and Brian Boland, Brian Boland, uh, and uh, illustrator. Thank you, the drawer guy. Um, and it is, it's been, and when I first bought it 20 years ago, I, I really loved this book. I was into Batman at the time very much, and uh, it, does, it, does, it does a beautiful thing with Batman and Joker's relationship. However, it, it also does something about the relationship between the Joker and... Barbara Gordon. Uh, who is Bat- Batgirl. 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 Yeah. Batgirl. Um, which, so, by contemporary standards, is... It's kind of like the dead girlfriend in the refrigerator it, trope it is, in comic books, essentially. It, 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 uh, which, which is a, a discussion that's going, been going on in, around comics, f- around, in comics for the last ten, 10 years or so, this idea that, far out, guys, you're really using the women in these superheroes lives just as props and as motivational oh my god he you know he punched my girlfriend or he you know and and this book because it does a horrible thing to to barbara gordon again batgirl and she is the uh, daughter of uh, commissioner gordon and this book does some um some stuff with comparing, and this is not um, amazing, but comparing Bat, uh, Joker's Bat, uh, origin story with Batman's origin story. And it drives, and what it seeks to do, what the Joker seeks to do, is to drive Bat, Commissioner, Bo- Commissioner Gordon mad. To, sh- to show that anybody, uh, can, if break. they have a particularly bad day, will yeah. break and become essentially like the Joker himself. Yes. Um, it's... It, it is beautifully written. Beautifully um, written. It's problematic gender politics from 1988 aside. Yeah. Um, and it's exquisitely illustrated. By Boland. Uh, by Boland. And I know that uh, when you say you have bad news, I know it's been made into an animated film. It has. Which uh, changes uh, the relationship between Batman and Batgirl even more. Even further, yeah. Uh, and has been described as even more problematic yeah. than the original comic. So they've said that the producers of the film, so this is a quite a short comic, it's a 50-page comic, it's not really a graphic novel, uh, but it, it's been expanded into a feature film, which got a release on the weekend, a one uh, one-off release. You may have seen posters around town. The Killing Joke, here it comes, and it's got the picture of the, Batman, of the Joker taking a photo. At the centre of this book is the really, and reading it again now, the exploitative and misogynistic treatment of of Barbara, Barbara Gordon, who is who is indeed Batgirl. And, and the film, not that I've seen the film, but I've read the reports of the film, is that really it presents hers and Batman's relationship, so Batgirl and Batman's relationship, as a sexual relationship. This is very tricky. Uh, because it's a, essentially you're looking at sexualizing a relationship between a mentor and yes, a mentee, really very much. Uh, which is and she was always kind of icky. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they and then they make more of this. Uh, so they've said, oh, we've we've expanded Batgirl's uh, character and we've given given her more backstory. Well, actually, they've just made her more dependent uh, and more hanging off the, the the Batman story and and sexualized that story. Um, so uh, even though I've had a um a, a long and um uh, and, and, for, and for a long and back in the day when I bought it, I thought this was a great comic. I'm going to um tear it here uh, on on air. I'm going to. I'm just going to destroy it right here because I don't... 
I don't think it's good. I think it's bad. And I'm just going to rip it, rip it up. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't recommend it, and I think it should be torn into pieces. That was quite intense, Bernard. Okay. Uh, Shall we move on to another thing? Before we do, I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that uh, Alan Moore, as a writer, has himself since said... He has. uh, He has criticised his own writing uh, and his own uh, representation of women, particularly in The Killing Joke. He has a a bit of a history of uh, a bad history from the the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, Which was a time when we went, oh, yeah, comics are dark and we're going to embrace... Really, really it's... But it it reveals the the kind of misogynist attitudes Mm. that permeated culture at the time and which still permeate culture. Absolutely. But we are now more sensitive and more attuned to them. Except DC Comics have just produced this film which you know yeah. celebrated all again so let's go back to the indie comic world which yeah is thank you because i need i need a i need a breath of fresh i need a breath of good air and um uh in the, so australian science week is coming up science and comics can they combine yes they can my friends like yes, some kind can. of super robot <laughs> uh, in, a, in a very exciting way because there's a as a book been just just been uh, made called the invisible war a tale on two scales and the invisible war uh is set during the first world war on the on the um in france and in it a nurse uh, Sister Anne Barnaby is treating a young soldier who's come up. And, um, sorry if you're still eating your breakfast, but he's come back from the front with dysentery, and she and she contracts that that uh, that dysentery, the Shigella bacteria uh, mass into her into her system. Now he, she and so the comic book is a tale on two scales. So it's on the human scale, but it is also on the micro scale inside this uh, nurse's body. This book uh, is going to be launched during National Science Week, which is coming up, um, and you can find it at theinvisiblewar.com.au. And it's the product of a, a people called the Scale Free Network: Gregory Crocetti and Brioni Barr and. Ailsa Wilde are the writers, and your friend and mine, uh, uh, the man behind Squish Face Studios, David Blumenstein. No, not David Blumenstein. Ben Hutchings. Ben Hutchings. Ben Hutchings is the artist. Okay. Um, and so you can see a bit of their story on the invisiblewar.com.au uh, website, and it looks great. And so, and Ben, um, uh, as well as being a great humorist, is a great detailist. And so you have these panels between uh, uh, Sister Anne Barnaby in the um, in the tent, you know, treating this boy, and then uh, and then you go inside her body and you see the Shigella bacteria massing and and you know saying woohoo, you know, like a bunch of. Um, uh, uh, ninja turtles, uh, and then she has the phage, the phage which is going to protect protect her her, her body. So it's one nurse, trillions of microbes, a deadly battle. France Sounds fantastic, yeah, and it's being launched um, at this gr- at a lovely place in the city. Oh, the the Royal Society, Society of Victoria, Victoria. yeah, How very appropriate, absolutely. So this is a beautiful building on the corner of uh, Exhibition and Victoria Streets. 
Uh, just near the museum there, and it's the Royal Society. And so on the 20th, Saturday the 20th of August, from 3 to 5 p.m., there will be a talk and the book will be launched. Um, you can buy it now as a, as a download or as a physical book. And you can reserve your place for the launch via Eventbrite if you go to theinvisiblewar.com.au where there's also a video uh, of the comic book summarising it uh, in 85 seconds. <laughs> Which is always always useful. Yeah. So we have destruction of comics here, but we have a great and flourishing uh, uh, local comic book culture. Uh, a cultured culture. <laughs> nice work, Richard Watts. I will see you soon. I will see you in a month's time. We're going to talk more comic books then. And uh, having never been to the ro- inside the <gasps> Royal Society of Victoria building, but I walk past it almost every day on the way to work. <sighs> um, so I'm definitely going to have to book for the launch oh. of uh, issue one of oh, the first edition of The Invisible War, uh, which Bernard was talking about. Uh, science meets comic books. Yeah. So that, that date again, Saturday the, 30, uh, the 20th. 20th of August from 3 to 6 p.m. More details at theinvisiblewar.com.au. Bernard, we'll catch you in a month. See you later. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We just heard Annie Lennox covering the track Every Time We Say Goodbye, taken from uh, the compilation Red Hot and Blue, but it also appears on the soundtrack of the Derek Jarman film, Edward II. Uh, it's a beautiful track. That's a great film. That film introduced me to uh, a unique moment in queer history, uh, which we're going to discuss now because it's been revisited by uh, one of my guests, playwright Anthony Way. Anthony, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. Uh, uh, and uh, also joining us in the studio is director Matt Lutton, who is directing Edward II at the Malthouse in the Merlin Theatre. Uh, it previews from tomorrow night, I do believe, and then opens next week. Matt, welcome. Thank you. So, Anthony, let's begin. Uh, the, the history, the character, the story of Edward II, some people may know it from the, the Derek Jarman film, others may know it from the original Marlowe play or just from reading English history. Mm. What was it about the character that intrigued you and made you want to revisit his story in a contemporary play? Um, well, the Marlowe is a, is a really kind of astonishing play. Um, extremely poetic and very, very plot-heavy and really, really malleable. And Brecht famously adapted it um, in the early uh, 20th century. And um, Matt and I were casting around for something to uh, for something to work on, and we were thinking very much in a kind of queer vein. Uh, and so we thought it might be interesting to uh, to look at Edward, but through perhaps a different prism, perhaps something that takes into account the politics and the history of the play. It's a really kind of exciting play. I always think if Marlowe were writing today, he'd probably be writing Hollywood blockbusters. Um, like or HBO television. Yeah, 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 completely. <laughs> like long kind of plot, 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 you know. Um, and um, uh, so we thought it would be really interesting to um, take the play and uh, really excavate it for something maybe new and a different perspective on the play. So, yeah. Matt, in terms of programming this into your 2016 season, uh, obviously it, it was in development for a, for a while, but mm. what were you hoping to achieve by developing this piece? Uh, I think there was always an interest in looking at individuals and politics. I think there's always a strand of looking at... Well, I was very interested in the history play. That was something that started mm. the discussion of, with Anthony about, about using a history play as a foundation, so looking at 
individuals and where their personal decisions would have massive ramifications for a community or populace. Um, and I think the, the looking at a queer work was exciting, but also I think there was something in Edward that felt like uh, he was potentially a very contemporary figure. There's something in him being a, a narcissist or sort of a sadist and a masochist and how his sort of uh, sexual and personal life starts to be mirrored in a much larger public way. So I think those sort of tensions between personal and politic became interesting from a programming point of view. Yeah, the notion of a king who becomes so obsessed with someone that he is allowed to prepare to allow his kingdom to fall into ruin, essentially, mm. the, the political alliances which tie together medieval Eng- England by taking a male lover and and not just quietly off on the side but flaunting it is fascinating for a for a by contemporary standards what we call gay identity of course did not apply in kind of in the period that uh, in which edward was living but nonetheless for a, a man to so flagrantly break um uh, the the laws around his marriage, the the taboos around same sex relationships in medieval England. It was was it an act of madness or a, an act of bravery to do so? I think an act of passion. Um, I think it's a great play about addiction. Um, he's completely addicted to this this man and his the sort of um, damage that he then lays waste to the people around him and the kingdom is because of his complete single mindedness about the pursuit of love and about um, about who this man is to him. I think also the reason why we find the play interesting is because um, Marlowe treats um, Edward's kind of notional homosexuality completely unremarkably. It's only ever alluded to once in a very tiny moment in the play. People have more are more outraged by the fact that he's taken a lover who's not of his class scandalous yes, <laughs> yes, yes yeah. so and i think that's why we relate to it because it's not like ooh, it's a play about you know this gay king um it's a play about a man in love and a man so in love that he's willing to destroy everyone around him to to keep that love so which uh, obviously makes for a great story, but the language of Marlowe is not necessarily easily uh, listenable to for untuned audiences, audiences who who haven't found the frequency of, of that language. Mm-hmm. So you've modernised and, and that in your adaptation completely. I mean, Matt and I made a very a very clear decision early on. If you want to write poetry, then stick to the Marlowe, because <laughs> I I ain't no Marlowe, you know. So that's uh, um, so we thought. Well, then let's do what we do, what what we can do. Uh, which is write something very contemporary, very sparse, very spare, um, uh, with lots of space in it, I think. Mm. Uh, you'll agree, lots of kind of um, room in the text. Uh, so hopefully it's kind of anti-poetic um, in hopefully the best possible way. <laughs> what does that room in the text allow you to do as a director then, Matt? Uh, look, I think it allows... Um I think it just allows a really fullness in the storytelling. I think there's so much in the the story of Edward and Marlowe from very intimate moments, uh, very erotic moments, to very large gestures, you know, large, you know, gestures of pageantry and coronations and funerals, the, you know, the sense of an entire city going through revolt or revolution. Uh, so I think then uh, Anthony's text allows really astute psychological observations but then allows space for sort of imagery and for the stage to be transforming for the much larger, more epic moments of storytelling. So in some ways the, the text is sort of taking d- deep care of the emotional machinations of everything and the stage is trying to take care of the much larger political 
you know, um, the big city gestures. Yeah. Um, look, I was already intrigued about the production from the minute I heard about it, and the more you guys talk, the more I'm really looking forward <laughs> to the opening night next week. Um, talk to us uh, about uh, casting a, a play like this. Uh, I think you... Um, look, I think it was really interesting... Uh, thinking about who to play Edward II because it's a character that on stage needs to be deeply charismatic, someone that we want to spend... who's on stage nearly the entire play and who we want to spend all our time with. At the same time, he has incredible cruelty in him and incredible sense of sadism. Um, and that has to... Uh, we have to... Some, it, it, it takes an actor, and I think Johnny Carr does it incredibly well, to play those extremities where we see someone flipping between extremes of love, extremes of cruelty. Um, and so casting that role took, you know, a lot of looking around, but Johnny was certainly the person that was able to deliver those sort of extremities. And uh, he's been uh, on your stage again, not just in quite the, recently, in the, in the events. events. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was doing, he was re- performing by night, rehearsing by day, so he's certainly show fit. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, he's been extraordinary to work with. And what about getting the right chemistry between him and Gaveston? The- yes, there was a lo- there was a many um, a lot of people who were camp coming in and auditioning <laughs> and playing opposite each other. I think Johnny fell in love with a lot of people throughout auditions. <laughs> um, uh, but that chemistry is so vital, and um, and I think it's certainly there and very strong between Paul Ashcroft and Johnny Carr. And there's a sense of it has to be established quite early in the play because then their relationship becomes far more complicated as it progresses. And without that kind of intense, believable kind of passion from the get-go, the, the, the play itself simply won't work. No, I, I agree. And, um, I mean, one of the sort of inventions of this um, version that Anthony's created is that there's in some ways a prologue that we sort of actually go before the Marlowe play and we see the establishment of that relationship for the first sort of 10 to 15 minutes on stage. So it's given more time to invest within than the Marlowe um, provided us with. Now, Anthony, you were, a, uh, I think, a NIDA graduate. Um, I was, uh, a long time ago. You're now primarily based overseas, aren't you? I am, yeah. In the yeah. UK? Uh, in the UK, although I also spend a lot of time uh, in New York as well. But yeah. yeah. So, given that I imagined uh, adapting, while well, writing a modern version of, of Edward II would have taken a fair bit of research, talk to us about some of the research you must have undertaken. Were you running around England's green and pleasant <laughs> land? Kind of like, um, <laughs> no, <laughs> in a word. Um, no, I just read the Marlowe a lot. And there's also some, I mean, you know, uh, there's some fantastically astute scholarship around uh, the play and around Marlowe. And, you know, I read a bit of that as well. Um, but, uh, but no, I really uh, just focused on the Marlowe. My, my process was to look at the Marlowe and boil it down to its, its DNA and then see if we could build something that really had a whiff of the Marlowe, but that was something new. I think we always mm. wanted to create something that was new. Yeah. Which I can certainly understand that because you don't want you want to honour the past but not be tied down by it mm. when you're presenting a new work on stage. Mm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think one of the things we also spoke about really early on was that Marlowe was writing a history play and we're writing a tragedy. Yeah. You know, we're following our intent, you know, the interest is following the characters that Marlowe portrayed as opposed to looking at historical accuracy. The other thing too I think that was interesting is that, it, um, is that because of the, the constraints of casting that we could only have a cast of five, it wasn't until I got the five people on stage that I realised it's also a family play. 
But as soon as you put five people on stage, I think it really speaks very strongly to to, to a family play. So. so, which is an interesting challenge for a playwright to then not be able to clearly see the work in some way until uh, relatively late in the process. So, did once you had that cast was assembled, did it mean you then went back and did a significant rewriting? No, certainly it informed my choices. You know, once we decided this, these were the people we were going to use, and I, I came out. We spent a little bit of time late last year. Uh, with um, our cast, uh, that certainly uh, gave me a real feel for what I wanted to do to them. <laughs> <laughs> now, I always feel that it's important to acknowledge the uh, the rest of the creative team as well as uh, mm. we've talked about the cast a little bit, and obviously we have writer and director here, but um, Matt, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about who uh, is designing. Sure. Uh, because I think that, as we've said, the, the look of it on stage and the theatricality of it on stage are going to play a key role. Oh, it's a very important part of the production, and uh, Mark Horwell has done the set and costume design which comes from an approach of uh, the space has sort of been conceived as a very large uh, museum. So it's almost the museum in remembrance of the decadent king uh, of an Edward I and an Edward II and possibly an Edward III. So um, she's created an extraordinary sort of um, monolithic sort of space. It's a very large monumental space, uh, which uh, the entire show perform- is performed in. It's con- performed in contemporary costumes. So there's a sort of blurring of the 14th century with a lot of the violence on stage and then the sort of contemporary psychology, I guess, in the costuming. Um, and then Kelly Ryle has sort of created the sound the sound design and composition for the work, which sort of includes everything from very subtle underscoring to sort of bone-shattering moments when the sort of, you know, institution of the monarchy steps in and people are coronated or people die. Um, and Paul Jackson has sort of been the master of light, um, doing the lighting design to sort of shift this museum into sort of the variety of emotional places and locations we need to shift to. Really looking forward to seeing Edward II at the Malthouse Theatre from the 29th of July through until the 21st of August. Uh, prices range from 35 to 65 bucks. You can book at malthousetheatre.com.au or by picking up the phone and dialing at 96855111. Edward II is on at the Cooper's Malthouse in the Merlin Theatre, previewing uh, from tomorrow night. So I suspect that Matt is eager to get back to the theatre <laughs> to uh, make some tweaks and tests and see how it's all coming together. We've been talking to director Matt Lutton and writer Anthony Way. Guys, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Joining us in the studio now to talk about a new production by Optic Nerve of The Mill on the Floss at Theatreworks. We have director Tanya Gerstel and actor Grant Cartwright. Welcome to you both. Thank Good you. morning. So, uh, Tanya, we'll start with you. Um, why direct a novel which is, what, from just set and written, I think, just after the Napoleonic era <laughs> and um, written by a woman but published under a man's name because nobody could possibly have believed a, a woman could publish a novel? Mm. Oh, well, women were publishing novels, but they were a bit um, frilly and uh, little little uh, dolly stories about inconsequential domestic stuff. And Marianne Evans, which is the writer's name, wanted to publish... Uh, a literary work and a woman wouldn't be taken seriously in that genre of the time so she published under a male name pseudonym George Eliot why do it it's it's quite extraordinary the modernity of the story as you start to move into uh, portraying it in a in a physical way uh, you know as a theater piece as a theater event 
uh, you know, every day in rehearsal, really, you, you, I'm looking and listening to words, listening to dialogue, listening to scenes, things go, wow, you know. How much has changed in some quarters? And I think, for me, I, in the reading of it, in the wanting to tell the story, uh, you know, as a privileged bourgeois white woman of the West... You know, and we have time and space to think about feminist concerns, etc., etc. One would go, um, oh, why is this story even relevant? But you know, 99.9% of women on the globe are still getting acid thrown in their face when they reject someone. There's still, um, you know, three times I divorce thee and you're in the gutter with your kids and you have nothing. Things as simple as the pay gap that <laughs> still gap. exists, Ditch glass the ceilings. I mean, I mean, it's all going on, it's all going on. So, yes, you know, we might look at this story and say, well, it's old-fashioned, but it's not. The language is quite, be- is quite beautiful to speak. Um, because it comes from an era that we that we're not accustomed to, so that's great to hear in the theatre. It's it's poetic. It's heightened. So um, Helen Edmondson, who's adapted, has kept some of the the language of the period, or kept the flavour of definitely, the flavor. yeah, definitely the flavour. And even you know, if you read read the novel, there's um, particular passages from the novel that. Uh, transcribed into the play um, because I mean George Eliot uh, her use of language and poetry was such that that's so wonderful to speak these words so you definitely get a flavour um, or more than a flavour of 19th century speak so to speak Listeners might know A Middlemarch which is her most famous novel and sometimes touted as the as the best as the best novel of the 19th century I Yeah think. that's right yeah. So The Mill on the Floss follows, um, I guess it's a 15-year kind of story. Mm. So that, to begin with, that alone presents challenges for adaptation Mm. uh, when you're trying to convey that length of time. And I think it was originally published as three separate books. So, Mm. so it's it's a it's a large, sprawling uh, work covering a, a significant period of time and. The growth in our female protagonist from nine through mm. to kind of about twenty five, twenty six, yeah. yeah, and the challenges she faces as a woman in the period, mm. uh, romantic challenges, f- negotiating friendships, mm. uh, uh, relationships with a married man, and so forth. So there's an enormous amount in there to unpack and present on stage. Mm. It's epic. It's epic storytelling. We don't get a chance to see that that much in our contemporary theatre ecology because of the expense, because you know, we're really having to produce things with two, three, four actors on stage and certainly with contemporary stories you don't get that epic sprawl so it's generally reserved for long format um, television or you know, mini, right. mini series or something like that. Logistic, so logistically, it is a how challenge. Do you present yeah. that? And that, that's what's really interesting about Tanya's work and with um, Optic Nerve is that it isn't literal. It isn't. So a lot of the solves happen in in the doing, in the playing, in quite an abstract, um, very physical, uh, physical performance kind of way. Now, given that we said the focus is on the a female protagonist, um, I think it's clear to people listening, Grant, that uh, you are not playing the female <laughs> protagonist. I'm not one of the Maggies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is very interesting because what um, Helen Edmondson and Shared Experience, who created, who originally adapted the novel, they've... Um, put a particular conceit of having three women, three different women play Maggie at different stages and three very different women to represent really different 
times in Maggie's life and um, generally a new Maggie will appear after some kind of crisis or some kind of realisation or revelation. Um, so no, I, I play Maggie's brother um, who, who provides a lot of... Um, a lot of stress for Maggie along the way. Um, and certainly I represent the social context of the time, which is men were favoured, men were given opportunities that women weren't given. So Maggie has to see her brother, Tom, who they share such a passionate, tempestuous love as siblings, but um, Maggie's definitely smarter. She's more worldly. She know, she can figure out a lot more things than Tom can, but she has to watch Tom um, get all the things that she really wants or deserves as well. Mm. Now, in terms of the book itself, obviously it, it's a significant work of literature, so and it's it's a wordy, dense piece. But what intrigues me about you directing this, I guess, Tanya, is that you work with narrative, but you work with narrative in a not always from a, a purely text-based approach. We've already heard uh, about the, the physicality of your work as well. So, talk to us about. Approaching a narrative like this, a very text-heavy original narrative, and adapting it for the stage in a in a much less text-oriented way. Mm. Well, that's the challenge. That's what's exciting about taking a novel to the stage. Um, the company's taken film, uh, screenplays, uh, radio texts, um, various other journalistic, non-dramatic material to the stage. Um, and this is the experience of taking the story of a novel and that kind of languaging to the stage. And what I'm interested in is the, is the physical language that happens underneath the words. So really it's expressionistic, if you like, in that sense. So the physical world of the characters represents their inner life, what's happening emotionally. So you do get the layer of the text which is totally understandable. People talk to each other backwards and forwards. But what they do is not always what one ex- would expect someone to do if they're having that conversation. So it's not Jane Austen, BBC version. It's uh, something quite extremely physical and emotional, and but also with an absolutely coherent and logical narrative, linear narrative and characters and emotional journey. So it just offers about three or four different layers to the theatrical experience. There's singing, there's these actors that I'm working with have extraordinary voices, so there's some beautiful singing happening all the way through. Um, Great sound design from, you know, experienced composer, um, lighting. So it's it's a total theatre experience, really. We, We as a company want to create theatrical impact, so we're interested in you walk into the space and when you come out two hours later, you're changed or moved in some way. I'm looking forward to it even more now. You're also doing something different with this production in that you're allowing the public into the development process in a way that is not usually done in theatre. Yeah, well, we work in a particular way um, and we enjoy sharing that, really. And, and I've always been an advocate of audience education and because I come from the experimental and from the avant-garde from <clears throat> years ago... I'm interested in people understanding how this kind of work gets developed so that they can enhance their viewing experience. Um, I think there's not a lot of knowledge about that. I think everybody was in a school play at some point and so they understand you've got a script in your hand, you talk backwards and forwards, you put some light on it, you don't bump into the furniture and you've got a play. So I think when you go and see main stage work or you see commercial work, you can 
anyone, any theatre-goer can understand, oh, I kind of understand how this came together. Whereas with, certainly with um, theatre-making processes and more experimental work, I think the watchers, unless you're involved in that kind of realm, you don't know how it emerged. You have no idea how they got to this end point. And so I was very interested in trying to open up that process so people could come and view some rehearsal, could talk to the practitioners, there'll be a Q&A and there'll be workshops. So once the show is performing, um, we are offering workshops during the day in the space to show, in a way, the process that the actors train with in order to be able to do this kind of work. Now, for Grant, for you as an actor, you've done quite a bit of TV work, film work, and you've worked with quite a few of the main stage companies around the country. So what's the appeal in working in a, in a, with a company like, like Optic Nerve and this process that we're talking about? Sure. Well, Tanya and I have worked together a few times before, and that's really the answer as to why I'm here again, is because Tanya's work, the approach to the performance... Um, it's such a, you don't get it any, or I haven't experienced it anywhere else. So any of the main stage work, you know, film and TV is so kind of by the clock and all this kind of thing. Whereas Tanya, Tanya's work, it's all about the physicality. It's really robust. There's so much freedom. Um, you get to experience things that you don't normally get to experience in a rehearsal room and then translate those into performance or you maybe experience some of those things in a rehearsal room but then performance comes and you have to just take all that and just make it in a life but you still have to move like you would move in a victorian era but here at times there's bursts of energy that uh, in these abstract moves which make so much sense to the narrative but um, have to be discovered in a certain way that Tanya's work allows. What kind of things are you encountering in the rehearsal room that you don't encounter elsewhere? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's such a layered process that we have but, um, you know, there's a, there's a particular scene, for example, where um, uh, I am approaching my sister who um, I've just caught with another man who she's the family I have forbidden her to see. Um, so I, instead of kind of, you know, I, we could play this scene very much just across the space, talking to each other, yelling at each other. The other man is there. Um, there's a moment where I grab the other man, pull a shirt, uh, his shirt over his head, and in a really fast move, I've bent him over my knee in a back bend, and I'm pulling his arm out, and text is coming, physicality is happening. There's a really incredible image happening on stage that makes perfect sense, but it makes no sense if you were to just throw that out into a normal kind of environment so it's that kind of extreme that i really love like you you are sweaty um you it's you actually experience a lot of the physicality that is happening as opposed to just acting it pretending it which then presumably for the audience gives them uh, a greater what well, a greater reality to 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 explore and 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 feel in the theater because they're not just watching text delivered and maybe a, a fake fight or something they're they're getting a much more visceral uh, is this a, a, a way to deeper connect the audience yeah. to the drama? Oh, it is that. But also I think, I think what do I want to see when I go to live performance? And I'm really interested in watching skill. And when I, uh, yes, content, yes, story, yes, form and aesthetic, but the appreciation of a performer or an actor's skill is something that I really, really enjoy. And so when I see an actor working not just psychologically but emotionally and physically and vocally and psychically all in the one moment 
and pumping out that kind of energy, then I'm thrilled and changed as an audience member. So this work, because it is so visceral and so physical and so demanding, it's very demanding of the actor, um, gives you an experience as an audience member that you are actually watching an actor go through a transformative experience. They have to in order to do what they have to do. So it's something that everything, everyone is changing in the room, the actors, the audience, the, the vibe, the feel, the story. Um, and that's the, that makes the live presentation very alive, very exciting for me. Yeah. Uh, the production we're talking about is uh, Optic Nerves, The Mill on the Floss at Theatreworks, which is running from the 28th of July until the 13th of August. And you can find all the, the booking details and more at theatreworks.org.au. And I'll give out some of the, the performance times and ticket details in a moment. But, Tanya, I'm, I'm intrigued. If people who love this novel come along, are you hoping that they will recognise everything, even though it's transmuted and, <laughs> and performed in a, in a very different language and narrative style from what they're used to from reading the book. Um, do you think they'll be affronted, engaged? What, what, what do you hope that people will take away from this, if, particularly if they love the book? Well, I think with all adaptation processes, it, it's interesting. It's a collaboration, isn't it? I mean, for us, I think the, uh, the novel itself is we've used it as generative material to engage the imagination of the artists that are currently working. So we're interested in creating a fantastic story and a theatrical experience. And that is not always in sync with total faithful um, adherence to events and plot points and relationships. It's not going to happen. So if someone has read the novel and wants to see that, they'd be better off getting the BBC adaptation. BBC adaptation because that's not what they're going to get. They're going to get a group of contemporary artists um, filtering that material and presenting something through their own lens. Um, so, yes, there's all sorts of stuff that goes on that doesn't exist in the novel at all. But there's also, coherently, the characters, the through lines, everything you will recognise from the novel. That's right. And that underbelly does exist in the novel in a way. You know, the, 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 it was a violent time. It was a dark time. Like There was the familial relationships, men, women, there was particular rules in place that allowed men to do particular things to women and it which you know is still kind of relevant today but the, that underbelly is what i love about this work brings the underbelly to the top quite a bit mm. it's the kind of work that i would only expect to see in the independent theater scene rather than perhaps on a on on a main stage here in australia and the fact that it's a cast of 8 i think is also significant because it's very it seems that only independent theater can sometimes get away with really large casts in this day and age yeah. um yeah. as because the the main stage is going right we will pay you award rates we can afford 3 of you um and one of you is playing 8 roles um exactly so and the celebrity we've got has taken all the money so <laughs> we need to but it's right i've done a couple of mtc shows where there've been big 10 12 cast members and this Those is shows are increasingly rare though very very yeah maybe there'll be one in a season or every second you know season or something like that but it's such a different beast to be amongst that kind of clockwork um of a process and then you hear you have eight actors playing 17 characters the costume isn't literal the um body is allowed to do a lot of things that um you wouldn't be able to do in that other context and so therefore it's quite a seamless transition into character it's an interesting transition it happens on stage before your eyes in some in some circumstances it's not it's not any kind of off stage the whole space is the world and that's what's so immersive about something like this 
if you want to be immersed in uh, the particular world that has been created by Optic Nerve Performance Group, uh, The Mill on the Floss is playing at Theatreworks, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda, from the 28th of July until the 13th of August, Wednesdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm, plus 1.30pm on Saturday the 6th and the 13th. So previews, which are always cheaper to get along to, if you're strapped for cash, like I know I always am, um, previews are happening uh, today, the 28th, and tomorrow, the 29th, with opening night on Saturday. Today. Bookings at theatreworks.org.au or call 9534 3388. And if you'd like to know more about Optic Nerve Performance Group, just jump online opticnervepg.com. We've been talking to director Tanya Gerstel and actor Grant Cartwright. It's been a pleasure having you both in the studio. Thank you, Thanks Richard. Thank you very much, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.